indirect disapproval is a consequence of learned social disapproval. In other words, somehow or other, we have internalized, made our own, adopted and been persuaded to believe a moral code that isn't really our own, but something that society has imposed upon us or persuaded us to believe. And in that respect, when I, thinking that, for example, I am doing something in secret, nevertheless find myself being ashamed of it or of thinking it or whatever it might be, that is indirect disapproval. So between direct and indirect disapproval, we find all the forces that bring to bear upon us a socially originated and configured set of principles which we either accept or reject, and if we accept them, which do have the power either to make us feel mildly uncomfortable or downright disgusted with ourselves. It scarcely needs saying that the trouble with this is that as I said earlier, society can try to impose all sorts of such direct and indirect disapproval upon us in ways that we do not necessarily agree with. We may not agree with society's view of the morality of something. And very often we find ourselves emerging from periods of intense social prejudice. And one need only think, for example, of the fact that there was a time when society thought it perfectly acceptable to keep slaves, when society thought it perfectly acceptable for men to be abusive towards women and to subjugate women, when society thought that it was perfectly acceptable to persecute people who were homosexual in some way. That society says something doesn't mean either that I should or indeed will resonate to it and in response feel self-disgust. But it may also be the case that the disapproval that society expresses directly or indirectly is just plain wrong. And that can happen, for example, over their dislike or, or, or the disapproval that is shown for something one has said, something one has written, something one has done. And this takes the form of bandwagons, of uh, persecution manias, of mass hysteria, and essentially of ganging up on the minorities that society for some reason or other has decided it doesn't like at a particular time. And one need only consider the shameful behaviour of the authorities towards Alan Turing's homosexuality to see how destructive this kind of social disapproval can be. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the person who, upon whom it is visited need resonate to that disapproval. And here we come to what starts to look like the key point. We've said many times, particularly in series one, that anyone who advances an idea that is novel, that is new, that is unusual, that is unprecedented, that does not find ready acceptance in the contemporary world, will usually face an uphill battle. One need only consider the concluding section of David Hume's Treatise of Human Nature, 
where he talks about being affrighted and confounded by the fact that the world has effectively turned against him as a result of what he has said and that he finds himself with no friends anywhere. One need only consider that and many, many other instances where social disapproval has been brought to bear upon some novel and indeed brilliant thinker as Hume was, to see the power that it can have. And of course, this is a mixture of things. It may be conspiratorial, it may be society deliberately trying to suppress something because it frightens it, or because it threatens the status quo, or because it's seen as seditious or rebellious, or dissentient to an unacceptable level. And we don't need to look very far anywhere in the world, even today, to see ways in which that can happen. Society still has a power to express its disapproval in ways that people can experience as deeply destructive. And indeed, they can be induced to kill themselves as a result. So where are we with all this? Well, what it means is that someone who wishes to advance something that is unusual, it doesn't need to be revolutionary or seditious, it doesn't even need to be overtly a challenge to the status quo, but it may just be different. It's like the people who early on tried to translate the Bible into the vernacular. It's like people who challenged the authority of the Catholic Church. It's like people who have even today, to fight for their academic lives when they express a view that the academic establishment, for some reason or other, and sometimes the student body in the current cancel culture situation, just doesn't approve of and therefore seeks to remove. And the whole point about freedom of speech, the whole thing that J.S. Mill struggled all his life to defend, was the notion that diversity and variety, even when people are wrong, or we think they're wrong, is something that we should protect. It's essentially the Voltaire syndrome of, I don't agree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. The, the point here is that anything that is said that does not find ready acceptance, in other words, where the framework of society isn't yet ready to resonate to it, will be rejected. It will meet with social disapproval. So at that moment, we have a choice. Let's suppose that we put ourselves in the sort of position that David Hume found himself in, but it could happen today. We have a choice. Do we continue to voice our dissentient opinion, our disagreement, our suggestion, if it's no stronger than that, about a way in which society might like to think again in the face of this disapproval. In other words, to put it in the simplest of terms, do we go on believing in what we're saying or do we allow the disapproval of society to induce resonances in our own self-doubt sufficient to occasion self-disgust or self-loathing and thereby to silence us? Because if we are silenced by social disapproval, by induced shame, then the world is the poorer. This is the point Mill makes. Diversity and variety are a means of achieving broad-spectrum immunity and a means of achieving broad-spectrum inventiveness through which the world can progress, through which new ideas can take root. 
And the taking root is a very pertinent metaphor because new seeds, when they take root, are very, very fragile. And they may only affect initially a tiny, tiny proportion of the biosphere around them. But gradually they can grow into great trees and give rise to the proliferation of their seeds and their species in such a way that it can eventually spread across the whole world. So there is a fundamental metaphorical point, but there is also a literal point, which is that we need to have the courage of our convictions. This brings us back to the relationship between seriousness, experimentalism and play. Because even though we are voicing suggestions, even though we are throwing out ideas, and this is now something like the 79th or 78th episode in this series, every one of whose episodes has been in that sense experimental and in large measure also playful, but we can still be serious in our play. We can play in a way that says that the game matters. We can say ascertaining what the truth is, ascertaining what it is best for us to do right now, and if necessary, correcting what the world thinks is the best to do right now, these are enormously important human endeavours, and none more so than in times of climate change and sustainability and war and pestilence and overpopulation and disease and all the rest of it, that will in the end only succumb to the determined, serious application of human innovation and inventiveness, which is a product of human play, of human experimentation, and of people who stick to their guns, who say, yes, I know you disapprove. As Hume said, yes, I know you disapprove, and I am affrighted and confounded by your disapproval, by the ostracism that I am experiencing as a result. But, nevertheless, even though there is an element of play in what I am saying in this experiment that I am performing, it is an element of serious play, because I am trying to find by tapping around in the world of possibilities that is open to me, I am tapping around and trying to find something that will show the way forward. And no, I'm not 100% sure. No, I'm not 100% accurate. No, I'm not right 100% of the time. But the only way that we will ever find the way forward is by doing experiments, by playing seriously with the possibilities that are open to us. And so we find ourselves in this strange situation that when we say something or write something or do something, it can be absolutely anodyne and everyday, in which case nobody will notice. It may even, as far as we're concerned, be anodyne and everyday and people do notice because for some reason or other it isn't quite what they were expecting us to do. But equally we can say and do and write things that give offence, that make society think, oh, I don't like that, that's dangerous, that's seditious, that's dissentient, that's revolutionary, that's too rebellious, that's going to upset the apple cart in various ways from the trivial to the monumental. And as a result, society will express its disapproval. But we have to make a decision we have to make the decision 
whether to stick with our vision or to suppress it. We need to, in Michael Polanyi's striking phrase, hold to our vision either in a way that conquers or in a way that dies.